Hello everyone, welcome to Footprints and a very, very happy new year to you all. For our first episode this year, we thought we'd have a look back at 2022 and delve into some of last year's episodes of Footprints. Over the year, more than 40 people kindly agreed to take part in the podcast and so an enormous thanks must go to them for making each show so varied and fascinating to listen to. So why not curl up somewhere warm, grab a mug of something hot and enjoy the show? Inspired by Bathscape's Views and Vistas project, we started off Season 2 in February looking at Bath from three different viewpoints. Di Shepherd, a landscape architect from Bath and North East Somerset Council, took me up Twerton Roundhill and set the scene. She told me about why the landscape of Bath is as much part of the UNESCO World Heritage Site as the architecture. Barry Cox talked about his work as one of the Cotswold Wardens while we walked up Little Salisbury Hill. But let's begin on Kelston Roundhill with Andy Dinham, a man whose family had farmed that piece of land for decades. I can't say I've been anywhere else with a view like we've got here today. Okay, it's nice that from Glastonbury Tours and up the distance on over the Somerset levels. But here you've got a 360 degree uh, visibility of uh, just beauty. And it's land you know in your soul. Very much so. This is retired farmer Andy Dinham. Father moved here in 46. And uh, after, I, after I left school, um, I went away, done some, worked on another farm and then come back to the farm here. But um, Kelston Roundhill and Roundhill Farm as such is so much special. There's so much history to it. It's unbelievable. And do you come from a long line of farmers? <laughs> I, I'd say yes. Because I must say, after... After father went uh, and my son took the farm over, I started finding out the sort of family history. And a direct line from about the late um, 1600s when we were farming down in Totnes. Uh, so we was, we've been constantly farming from then up until um, 05. And what's, what did you feel in 05 when your son sold the farm? Uh, I just took the back seat. And this is when I started to find out the history of the actual farm, um, obviously what we were walking on. First thing I found, before I even started metal detecting, we were walking over the steep hill, um, steep bank up in, up in Kelston Roundhill, and I picked up this fossilised seashell. And I thought, well, that's not normal to see a fossilised seashell here. I thought, OK, perhaps a bird had dropped it years ago, and um, it just sort of into a fossil but I don't know I just started scratching around and even today if we just scratch the surface of that particular area there'd be fossils there only little small ones but it just goes to show it was obviously years ago Kelston Roundhill was underwater and obviously then we found um, when part of the farm was found uh, ploughed we started finding the uh, Neolithic flints and flint tools and what have you, and uh, Roman brooches, Roman coins, I suppose the entire sort of history. And a lot of the stuff, that I've, in fact, nearly all the stuff I've found, I've taken to Bristol Museum and they've sort of checked it out. 
Oh, now look, in front of us are boxes and boxes of your finds, aren't there? And maps of all the different finds around Kelston Round Hill. And tell me some of your favourites. What have we got in front of us? There's one, uh, a ring, uh, 2000 BC. Oh, whoa, that is old. That's a ring? A ring, 4,000 years old, yeah. Wow. And what's the oldest thing you've got, Andy? I suppose the oldest things are the flints. Um, we found uh, like brachiopods and echiodermes and um, different things like that. But it's not until you sort of, okay, probably the normal person just walking across the field, don't take any notice what they're actually stepping on. It's not until you think, well, that stone looks different or whatever. You pick it up and you look at it, you think, well, wow, that is totally different. So show me something of what you've got here. Here's a... Oh, that's a 2,000-year-old BC ring. So this ring that I've got in my hand, it says copper alloy, and what you're telling me is that is 4,000 years years old. old. And somebody's fashioned that to wear... It always, seemed, it always seems there's, sort of, there's a shape to it, isn't there? Yeah. It seems to be now on that edge, you know? That what, is old, isn't it? I what, mean, what was happening at that time? I suppose you're talking of the Stonehenge time. Stonehenge? That was yeah, built Stonehenge. then? Yeah, Stonehenge. Yeah, I'm sure it was. What sort of date we're looking at um, the stone circle that Stanton drew, I'm not sure. You know, but I mean, that ring is the same age as what those two monuments are. Wow. Wow. That's just extraordinary, isn't it? <laughs> isn't that thrilling? It is. It's sort of... It's nice to find things, but there's so much more satisfaction of finding out the history of it. Did that give you a shiver when you were told that it was that old? I I just couldn't believe it that I thought, well, something that old. I mean, the people that built Stonehenge, I don't know what route they would have brought the stone, because I, am I right in thinking that that came from over in Wales somewhere? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's Bluestone, isn't it? You know? I mean... Uh, Maybe they passed by. Perhaps they did. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. In March, Bathscape organised a tree planting event at the site of the old workhouse burial ground up in Oddown. Back in the latter half of the 19th century, more than 3,000 people who died in the workhouse were buried with no ceremony and in unmarked graves. The site is up near St Martin's Hospital on Wellsway and we'll hear now from local historian John Payne, whose ancestors are buried there. So they then bought the next field down the Wells Road, which borders onto the modern Oolite Grove, and they started putting the bodies in. And it's um, 3,182 people who were buried here between, I think it was 1858 and 1899. And as we always say, quote, their only crime was poverty, unquote, and that is the fact of the matter. So what we've been trying to do in recent years is to actually remember those people and to remember them not just as a big number, but to remember them as individuals. You can probably see there's a small yew tree, the tree of life and death, which we planted a couple of months ago when we were up here planting bulbs and cowslips and sowing wildflower seed and that sort of thing. 
And that particular site in the centre of the field was where we'd actually had this very informal memorial going on for several years with people bringing up flowers and flags, flags with the uh, names and the dates of some of the people buried here, including my great-grandparents, as I said right at the beginning, Charles and Anne. I mean, their story is something I've written about in my most recent book, which is called A West Country Homecoming. They had come into Bath from a village called Chewton Mendip, right up on the top of the Mendips. For some reason, and we don't really know why, Charles decided he wanted to do something different. So he came to Bath, presumably to make his fortune, and he got married here and he had a couple of kids. And unfortunately, he didn't make his fortune and he didn't make enough money to actually look after himself in old age when he was ill and infirm and his wife was ill and infirm and all that sort of thing. I I mean, you know, what happens to people when they get a bit old like me now? (laughs) What do you think it means to you and to the families of the people buried here? What's the importance of remembering their names Well, I think it's actually writing a historical wrong. I mean, I think people have a right to life, but people also have a right to death. And the two things that I think should happen to any dead person is, first of all, that they should be decently buried with as many of their friends and relations around them as possible. And, I mean, we all know that that's come up as an issue very much during the pandemic because of the limitations on funerals. And the other thing is, well, what about the living? What about the people who are going on? Um, And the tradition of the way where people eat and drink and they have music and they tell funny stories and sad stories about, you know, the person who's passed. So finally, John, what do you want to happen from here on in in terms of this beautiful field that we're standing in now and all these trees are going in? What would you like to see happen? Well, I want it to be somewhere that looks good, but also somewhere that has things going on. And I think that's very much up to the local community up here on Odd Down. I just want it to be used by people, whether that's for organised games, for informal children playing, for dog walking, for picnics, for parties, for music. Yeah, I mean, this should be an amenity. My own view of the matter is that there should probably be some sort of permanent memorial up here, which would probably be a great hunk of bath stone with something carved in the side like their only crime was poverty. But on the other hand, local people may want something different. And, I mean, quite honestly, I feel I've done my bit up here, yeah? And I feel happy about it. I mean, when we had the band playing it up here, I lay on the grass and I thought, I thought, all you dead bodies out there, we've actually done something. We've actually done something about this historical wrong which was perpetrated on you. In the same episode, we heard from Dr Molly Connorsby 
a researcher from Bristol University. Here she is talking about the origins of the workhouse. In 1831-32, there was a huge outbreak of cholera, the first outbreak of cholera that England and Scotland had ever experienced. And what the cholera outbreak did was perhaps a bit like coronavirus has done for our generation. It shone a light on the social disparities, particularly in cities, because cities were on the whole the worst afflicted by this horrible disease. And it shone a light on the fact that uh, the, the dreadful, dreadful living and working conditions that many people had to cope with during that time. Edwin Chadwick was a leading civil servant and he was passionate about reforming the poor laws. And he led uh, a bill uh, in 1834, which was called the Poor Law Amendment Act. In towns like Bristol and Bath, uh, they had several poor houses and they would be for maybe anything from 10 to 100 residents. And they would be people who had fallen on hard times or were destitute or had a period of ill health and needed a small amount of help and support from the community. And those would be paid for by ratepayers' rates. What the 1834 Act did was get rid of those little local poorhouses and amalgamate them into what was called a workhouse. And the language is very important here. It was a transition between sort of poorhouse to workhouse because... Part of the driver behind the 1834 Act was this idea that there were two kinds of paupers. There was the indolent poor, the undeserving poor, and the deserving poor. I think this is a really important point to make because I think, unfortunately, it still sort of colours some of the political argument around poverty today. The workhouse was paid for by local subscription, by parish rates. They were run by local guardians. So those would be generally local business people, clergymen. Um, They predominantly were men, with some exceptions. And they were institutional. And the regime was brutal. Uh, Families were separated. Men were separated from women. And children were separated unless they were nursing babies. Children were separated from their parents. They were given pointless jobs to do, uh, picking oakum or breaking rocks, uh, because the emphasis was very much on work. You had to earn your keep to be in the workhouse. They would usually have an infirmary as well, because one of the most common reasons for people to go into the workhouse other than unemployment was a period of ill health, particularly um, at the latter stages of life, older age. Of course, there was no welfare state system in those days. So people were absolutely reliant on charity in order to survive. So the system was was brutal and pretty much hated and lasted, one must remember, well into the 20th century. You can read George Orwell um, down and out in Paris in London and he writes about spending nights in what was called the spike, which was a slang word for workhouses. So it was a detested system. In April, I met up with four generations connected to the same farm, Manor Farm, Langridge. We gathered together in Marianne Brunt's kitchen and it was her grandparents who first bought the farm when it was sold off as part of the Ashcombe estate way back in 1917. This episode told the fascinating story of one farm through one century with all the changes that it's seen. We heard much about how harsh life had been before electricity and central heating, but in this clip we meet Rachel de Fossard, whose family farmed there for 50 years, and we hear her talking about her father's beloved dairy herd. 
Well, I've said it was a, a mixed farm, so a little of lots of things, including a um, dairy herd, which was very small, about 20 cows. Father was, in my earliest memory, milked them by hand, sitting on the three-legged stool. <laughs> <laughs> The milk went off in uh, milk churns and it had to be taken to the bottom of that steep, steep hill each day to be collected. But, sad to say, when I was nine, the foot and mouth visited. So again, all the animals, uh, cloven hoof animals, had to be killed and killed on the farm, buried in a lime pit. And it was hugely sad We had about eight farm cats, wild cats, and they should have been slaughtered, but my brother kept them all in his bedroom, which was (laughs) dreadful foul. (laughs) All eight wild cats in his bedroom. Feral cats in his bedroom. Of course, we couldn't go to school. My parents couldn't leave the farm. There was a policeman in a sentry box at the bottom of the hill and there was straw soaked in disinfectant. If anybody passed, they had to disinfect their boots to come and go, but very few people did. And we relied largely on neighbours' donations of food to keep us going which was very exciting because it was things we didn't normally have, like tinned chocolate pudding and tinned rice pudding. And And you were nine, so this was an excitement. Yes, yes. And the ministry vets had to stay on the farm to oversee the dispatching of the animals. So my poor mother, I don't know how she managed. She had ministry vets living there and couldn't go to shop. So I don't know how we survived. And that was for six weeks we had to be like that. Six weeks? Gosh, that's amazing. Then after the animals had gone, we had teams of out-of-work men come to whitewash all the buildings and clean them and disinfect everywhere. But in a way, it was the making of my father because he got really well compensated. My mother bought herself a fur coat. (laughs) (laughs) And my father set himself up with a pedigree herd of Frisians called the West Point Herd. And I think for him, life got easier and more productive after that. Now, trees are a great passion of mine and they became the focus of our May episode. We heard from Joe Middleton from the Woodland Trust telling us about ash dieback. I went on a tree trail with Fiona Bell and we wassailed with Kilter Theatre Company at Bath City Farm. Here is Oliver Langdon in his character of January taking us through part of the ceremony. The wassail is by far and away my favourite January event. And yours too, I trust. The fruiting trees are asleep. Apples, pears. Oh, yeah, no, you're right. Let's go for an R. 
I've been sleeping a while now. Apples, pears, plums, peaches, cherries, the lot of them. But it's our job to wassail them, to wake them up. We've got to chase the evil spirits out of the branches where they've been sleeping throughout the winter and remind those apple trees and whatnot that they need to start getting going with this year's fruit. To be honest, we're going to try and wassail the whole of Bath because this is quite a high vantage point and if we turn out that way you can see all the seven hills upon which Bath is built and I reckon if we give it a really good shot there's a few dozy critters right over there by the university that we can just get shimmering in their branches. Down here is a lovely jug full of all the finest apple juices that have been prepared from the apple trees on this farm in previous years. It's delicious. and many a pair for more or less fruit they will bring as we give them wassailing wassailing <laughs> Do you remember how hot it was at times last summer? Well, the heat got us thinking about getting on the water and Bath is blessed with two canals and a river. Basket manager Dan Merritt and his daughter very, very kindly paddled me up and down the canals, venturing over the beautiful Dundas aqueduct. But at the start of the Somersetshire Coal Canal at the Angelfish Cafe, I met up with two men who know all about the origins of this canal and I'll let them introduce themselves. I'm Patrick Moss and I'm chairman of the Somersetshire Coal Canal Society. I'm Derek Hunt, committee member of the Somersetshire Coal Canal Society. And I didn't know, even though I've been here many, many times, that this was a different canal to the Kennet and Avon. Yes, it is a different canal. At the moment, there's only about 600 yards of it. I know just how long it is because I walk it every time I park my car and go to my boat. It was built at the same time and they were planned together. Their Acts of Parliament were actually passed on the same day in 1794. So they were, they were planned together. And the Somersetshire Coal Canal, as its name implies, was to bring coal from the North Somerset coalfield. The proposal was to Bath. That had been the market that had prompted the building of the canal because they were losing out to coal that was coming by sea to Bristol and then up the river and the, because their own transport over land was too expensive. But actually the Kennet and Avon Canal carried Somerset coal to many destinations and other cargoes along its own route and then other connecting canals. Somerset coal as a result of the Kennet and Avon Canal and other canals ended up in Oxford for example and in Abingdon. So this was the driver for the transport economy of the time. And in many ways, the Somersetshire Coal Canal was the broadband internet of its day. They needed it because other people had water transport and they were losing out in the marketplace to those other areas, the Forest of Dean, South Wales, because they had water transport and the Somerset Coalfield around Paulton and Radstock hadn't. 
and therefore their costs were higher and they were losing out in their own local market in Bath, 10 miles from Portland to Bath, and yet they were losing out to coal coming in from the forest of Deenham in South Wales. Fascinating. And did you say five or six hundred yards has got water in it? Why is the rest all dried up? The canal went out of business in the um, late 1890s because of railways, really. The railway system was much more efficient. It was integrated. Canals were very independent operations. But the technology of rail meant you could move coal. And so the Somersetshire Coal Canal became derelict. And where we're standing now, here at Dundas Basin, this was also filled in. And uh, it's only, what, um, about 25 years ago, 30 years ago, that it was restored and it's been put back here, as you can see, as moorings or a mini marina, if you like. And it runs up to the A36 and the tunnel still goes underneath. But I'm afraid when you get the other side to Moncton Coombe School, you'll see a dry bed. But when you get to the other end, which is Timsbury and Portland Basins, this is a cul-de-sac canal, in other words. It goes there, it doesn't link with any other canal except the Kennet and Avon at this end. We've got about um, 800 metres back in water there. In part two of our watery episodes, the following month we moved from the canals to the river via the Claverton pumping station where Julian showed us the magnificent water wheels used to pump the water from the river up to the canal to mitigate the leaks. I met up with Alison who films otters coming into her garden with her otter cam. But in this clip we hear whether or not I met a beaver. Bevis Watts, now CEO of Triodos Bank but who used to be in charge of Avon Wildlife Trust, had been surveying wild beavers on the River Avon. And one warm summer's evening he paddled me up and down Beaver Alley to see if we could find them. It was the first really, really hot day of the summer and the river was awash with paddleboarders and canoes, so the likelihood, he said, was small. Here in this clip we take up the story just after Bevis and I had heard a huge splash. We hadn't seen anything, Bevis decided to turn the canoe around and go back and I was instructed to stay as silent as possible. We're going back up river for another pass, aren't we, to see if we can see it again. Yeah, so we've turned around, I'm keeping my voice down, we've turned around, trying not to disturb this feeding, feeding swan to our right, but um, we'll turn around and we'll go very slowly back up and just see if, if that beaver emerges and swims along the river or something.
his hind legs. Splashing in the water. I don't know if he knows we're here. He's scratching himself. Oh, I can see him scratching himself with his back paw. And there's his face. be about a foot and a half long I reckon. He's gone into the water. That was just thrilling. I can't see him. Oh yeah, oh yeah, there he is. You can see his big tail and his big nose, his sort of flat head. He's looking at us. Oh, he's got an amazing tail. He's just dived into the river. One of the best sightings you'll ever have as a, of a beaver because you got to watch it for several minutes going in and out of the water watching it feed on willow shoots it was climbing along the, the fallen trunk of the tree looking straight at you so it doesn't get much better than that. and that that's not the same beaver we saw first so the first one was definitely an adult because the size of the 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 splosh in the entry was huge but i th think um, well, I'm sure that you saw that was quite a plump youngster. That's one of the yearlings. So that one's a year old. And, uh, yeah. Fabulous. The summer wore on, the meadows flowered, and it became time to collect the seed. I spent a joyful afternoon watching the National Trust and a gang of Bathscape volunteers collect seeds from Smallcombe Vale. Two directors of the Friends of Lincoln Hillfields also showed me round their site, including one of the world's very few tiny forests. But we'll hear now from Paul Pierce, who manages the meadows for Bath Parks Department, and who here starts by giving us the state of play with wildlife. Things are pretty bad for wildlife across the world, really. You know, Bath and North East Somerset has declared an ecological emergency uh, in the same way that it's declared a climate emergency. We've seen a loss of 97% of our species-rich grassland. We've seen massive declines in, in, in species in bumblebees and invertebrates. 
people talk about how they used to go for a drive in the country 20, 30 years ago and they'd be wiping bugs off their off their car bonnet and, and, and now that sort of thing doesn't happen anymore. So there's all sorts of evidence out there that, that things are not looking good. And I think it's our responsibility really to, to turn that round. And actually, if we do that, it won't just be good for wildlife, it'll be good for us. A garden without bees and, and bugs and birds flying around just isn't the same. It isn't the same experience. You might have lots of pretty flowers, but you haven't got the sounds, you haven't got the motion, you haven't got you know the excitement of seeing blue tit chicks fledging from uh, you know from a bird box. So having wildlife around us is good for us. It, it, it enriches our lives, and there's all sorts of evidence that says that it's good for mental health and. I think we all learned that a bit during lockdown when we could all hear birdsong again and how much happier that made us feel. And I think we're also learning, starting to learn a lot more about how complex the world is and how important biodiversity is in you know, making sure that our soils work effectively, making sure that our soil is fertile and that our soils retain moisture. And I think there's all sorts of aspects of our life on this planet where biodiversity is playing a main role that we just don't understand yet. So I think, I think it's in all of our interests to do our bit. Do I have a favourite meadow in Bath? I think my favourite meadow actually is Inox Park, which is a small park in Twerton. We created a meadow in, we started work on it about six years ago. We worked with Bathscape volunteers we sowed lots of yellow rattle and lots of wildflower seed and we planted lots of trees. But actually creating the meadows has just completely changed the feel of the park. So we've gone from a hillside that was boring green short grass that's now colourful and flower rich and all sorts of wildlife living in there. Great big spiders, butterflies, bees and actually you can see how it just gets better year on year and hopefully in about 500 years time it's it's going to be incredible it's going to be you know as good as any of the sites of special scientific interest in the UK By September Bathscape's fabulous walking festival was upon us This annual fortnight of walks is organised by our tireless Lucy Bartlett, who every year plans out a fantastic array of vastly differing walks. And so I wanted to find someone to tell me what walking meant to them and why they're so passionate about it. I went up to the top of Lansdowne to meet with Stephen Bird, recently retired Head of Heritage Services in Bath. Here he is. My preference is to walk on my own which is just my preference. A lot of people like walking with others. I just feel I get a fuller experience of the natural world around me. And I sometimes think that, you know, you walk in two zones. You walk in a zone of disturbance. So all the noise you make and how visible you are and how much you smell is somehow transmitted to all the wildlife around you. But you also walk in a zone of awareness. You, you see and hear and smell the wildlife. And so if you can make your zone of awareness larger than your zone of disturbance, you see it all before it sees you. And it's amazing how much you can actually see in terms of wildlife, rabbits, deer, foxes, birds, so much if you're just walking on your own in as much silence as you can generate. 
one of the things we take for granted is how blessed we are in this country with such a rich network of footpaths. We really are, because you don't find as comprehensive a network of footpaths anywhere else, certainly nowhere else that I've been. And so it is there to be used. And um, one of the things I've done since I've retired is I've uh, joined the Cotswold Wardens, the voluntary wardens. They're really well organised, and I go out with a work party. Yesterday morning I was out near Lucknam Park, near Cullen, and we were just improving the way marking on a footpath going across the fields and through the woods there. So it's a way of putting something back into the landscape that I've really enjoyed walking for so many years now. The community of growers and gardeners are plentiful in Bath, and in our October episode, we met up with many of them. Emily Wright from Bath Eastern Growers demonstrated a small-scale forest garden project, one of the many to start during lockdown. Hamish Evans, co-founder of Middle Ground Growers, showed me around their plot at Western Spring Farm, where enough organic veg is grown to support hundreds of veg boxes for the local community. But one group that caught my interest was in Whiteway. You'll hear next from Claire Loder from Blooming Whiteway, followed by Rachel Spence, who designed the Peace Path there. So with Dew, Dew Dry, so I started Blooming Whiteway about five years, yes, our fifth year actually. And from that, we started a front garden festival. And from that, I guess, as we've learned about the role of gardens, how they're connected to green spaces. And as we've understood how wildlife has declined and biodiversity is kind of diminished, we, we're thinking increasingly about the importance of our green spaces and the mosaic. And this park lends itself really well. I think it's like the beating heart of Whiteway because it's like the green heart is at the centre of the estate and it kind of emanates out. So everything that happens here kind of emanates out through the gardens, through Hakem Drive, that kind of squash circle, and then out to the landscape at English Coombe, the countryside that I can see across there, and then down through the city farm to Bath. So it's a really important site. I think it's really crucial. And a lot of people talk about how this space is kind of is vandalised, but I kind of think that, I mean, that's the human element. There, that Some of that goes on, but if you look beyond that and look at the wildlife and the, and the potential for growing the biodiversity and all of the implications on well-being and... You know, all the stuff that we've learned over COVID and how, how good all that is for us, then I think it's a really exciting space. What's really lovely is we have a great network of hedges. There's a lot of old privet hedges from when it was a council estate. It's great for, for wildlife. So we've got great populations of starlings and sparrows. I've seen a sparrow hawk hunt along our street, you know, more than once. I saw it the other day. There's kestrels, there's buzzards and... I think a lot of people have been really up for this and what we really wanted to do was not to not necessarily encourage people to garden more but maybe to leave stuff because there are a lot of wild gardens some people might call them scruffy but we're very excited by the bramble and the honeysuckle and the thick hedges because that's that's abundant so actually what we do is we take plants round put little flags in them saying we love your garden join our festival we started as Front Garden Festival, but we also collaborate with More Trees Baines, so we look after one of their community tree nurseries on Rush Hill, and we're there every week tending to those seedlings and trees. And the idea of that project is that we gather tree seeds locally, they're germinated in the city, and then they go out to tree nurseries across Baines with the idea that they go back into the ground. So it's this provenance, this local provenance, because we all know we need to plant more trees, but where are those trees coming from? 
I first came here, I met with a colleague in this part of the park and she said, let's create a path somewhere. And I looked, we'd looked all around the park and I was like, yes, let's do it in the main bit over there. And then we walked to this bit here and it was full of broken televisions and mattresses and litter and glass. And she said, I think this is the place that we need to do it. And I was like, oh no, this is like, no one will ever come here. It's too far hidden away and, and it's just all full of rubbish. But she and I worked together to clear all of that rubbish. And then we had this vision that we would create something uh, like a path through the trees and the, the bracken. So we cut back some of the bracken and made something that we call the peace path, which is this, in this patch that we're working in today. And it literally makes my heart just sing, seeing all these people that are here identifying bugs and uh, rebuilding the bug house, um, that they're all in this patch that we've been really, we've really loved this patch of, of the park for a few years. November arrived and it seemed a good time to hunker down and explore the stone that's been used to build Bath. I discovered that the city has the tiny museum of Bath stone and I caught up with its chief executive, Miranda Litchfield. Here she is reminding us why we can no longer go down the mines. But we can't actually go in the mines, can we? Not unless you have wings <laughs> and you are a bat. If you are a bat, you can, you're very welcome in the mines. Um, but unfortunately, there is no human access to the mines in Coombe Down any longer. Take me around the museum. Where should we start? Where shall we start? Oh, I don't mind. <laughs> so on one side, you've got a lot of beautiful black and white pictures of the insides of the mines. Let's start with mm -hmm. those. So this is actually brand new. So here today, installed this morning. Wow. <laughs> here this afternoon. So a real uh, exclusive look at the museum. So we've chosen these photographs from the uh, David Pollard collection. And he's wrote a brilliant book on Bath Stone and, and knew probably more about the subject than anybody else. So these are his images of the Coombe Down Stone Mines. And they are black and white, so they give the impression they're old. But they were actually only taken in about 2009. So these were taken during the stabilisation. So they show the the, the kind of state of the mind just before it was filled in. And we've chosen these particular photographs to try and give as much of an immersive feel of the stone mines as possible, um, but also to highlight some of the archaeological details and also just why the stabilisation was needed. So in one of these photographs, you can see quite clearly uh, tree roots hanging from the ceiling of the mine to the floor. <laughs> so we thought this was a really good way to show people just how close the ceilings of the mines were to, to the ground above. So this, you, can, you can imagine that tree is not much further um, above than we can see. So again, it just sort of reaffirms why the stabilisation was so needed at that time and why it was critical. Finally, to finish off the year in style, we celebrate with mulled wine at the Bath Christmas Markets and explore what has drawn visitors to Bath since the time of the Celts. Paul Simons, who brought Fermi Bath Spa to the city, gives us a fantastic historic overview, explaining that in his view, Bath Spa has reinvented itself five times. Catherine Davis, Head of Tourism for Visit West, talks about what they're doing now to attract visitors. But in this clip, local historian Kirsten Elliott is telling me how a Georgian visitor to Bath might wish to spend their day. So the original hot bath was in the centre of Hot Bath Street. In the 1770s, John Wood the Younger moved it to one side 
and designed the lovely little building that you see there now. I'm a big fan of John Wood the Younger because he's an early modernist. He was actually on Form Should Follow Function long before Louis Sullivan said it. And behind that was the little leper's bath, but the fashionable one was the cross bath. And so you might have been brought here in your little sedan chair and, and gone in, and you would have been wearing, if you were a woman, you would have been wearing like a loose canvas uh, shift or long petticoat. And it was almost certainly yellow because there's lots of iron in the water. So it's going to go yellow, so you might as well start off with it yellow. Very often a hat because the bars are open to the sky. And you would have in front of you a little japanned bowl or a little tray with flowers on and extra patches because, you know, it was very fashionable to wear little patches stuck on your face. Originally to cover blemishes and later they just became fashionable. But when you get in, the steam coming off, the patches did not stick as kindly as they ought. And that's important because where you stuck the patches had a meaning. So if you stick it decorously in the middle of your right cheek, you are a married lady. That's what you're telling the world, I'm a married lady. But if you have it down by your lip, it sends a very different message. So you can imagine if the patch slipped down, <laughs> you could be sending the wrong message. And the gentlemen would then, they weren't supposed to swim. But it says they would swim up and then fling their arms out. And then when you come out, you would be helped out. And there was a bath guide then, was a lady, nearly always a lady, who would help you round the baths. And when you came out, you'd be taken into changing rooms and you'd be wrapped up in towels, your wet clothes pulled off, wrapped up in towels. Wow. And then you'd be back into that little sedan chair and be carried home. However, you might not be going to go bathing. You could have gone to the pump room we won't go there today because I think Abbey Churchyard is going to be full of wooden huts ready for the Christmas market. But there you would, you would drink the water and you would meet your friends and you would chatter away and might dance a bit to the music. And then, of course, you'd want breakfast. There were coffee houses. But by 1759, 1760, the... A spring garden, it's a pleasure garden on the other side of the river is open and there you could have public breakfast. So you'd meet your friends there as well and have all sorts of things to, to eat and, and drink. It's roughly where the wreck is now. And if you'd gone home, then you might want to have a, a dancing class with your dancing master. Oh. And your dancing master didn't just teach you how to dance. He taught, you, he taught gentlemen how to remove the hat. He, you know, it was a very stylized world. And so even the right way to walk into a room, the right way for ladies to sit. So that's all the sort of stuff that's going on. But you might want to go shopping. So you might want to go into the markets, but you might want to go up to some posher shopping. So we're moving through the period. And on the way, you'll want to go to church. Oh, what a year that was. And we'll have loads more exciting episodes to bring you this coming year. But that's it for this episode of Footprints. Thank you for joining me. And don't forget, you can listen to all the previous episodes anytime you like. Please share as widely as you can with your friends, family and colleagues. For more information on Barscape, visit the website barscape.co.uk. Footprints was hosted and produced by me, Pommy Harmer. And I'll see you next month.